And the time to start, if you're not living your dream, is right now. Start setting goals and setting out where you set in the course of your life and setting it all up so that you get somewhere in the future. When all that comes together, something happens called fulfillment. If you are not experiencing awesomeness in every aspect of your life, it's just from an internal block or barrier disconnect that you've chosen to take on. Life is as easy or as hard as we want to make it. And I got my hands and my eyeballs and my heart around any information I could around holistic healing. And that led me down a never-ending rabbit hole of which I'm still spelunking into the depths of. I needed something like ayahuasca to really wake me up because I was very rigid and very stuck in my ways and very structured and controlling. And my first ayahuasca ceremony cracked my ego in a billion pieces. And uh, that's when I believe when you when we really follow our deepest truth, when we really follow our souls, when we really follow our true calling, the universe rises to support us moment to moment to moment. Welcome to the Holistic Health and Human Potential Podcast. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. I'm an international speaker, author of multiple books, an integrative nutritionist, a transformation and embodiment coach, and simply a man who has devoted most of my life to the study, application, and integration of human potential. And it is my biggest inspiration to bring you weekly episodes that will expand your mind, challenge your paradigm, deepen your heart, and help you to embody the greatest version of yourself as I believe you are meant to do something incredible with your life and this podcast exists simply to support you on that journey. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to episode 114 of the Holistic Health and Human Potential Show. I'm your host, Ronnie Landis, and we have a deep, deep interview lined up for you with Daniel Pinchbeck. And if you don't know who Daniel Pinchbeck is, he is a best-selling author of some incredibly famous books in certain fields of study. Some of those books include Breaking Open the Head and 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. In fact, in 2011, I believe, that's when I first got introduced to his work when I read that book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And that was before the whole 2012 thing actually hit. And we realized that the world wasn't going to fall apart. It was actually a shift in consciousness that was occurring and emerging within a lot of individual people and collectively on the planet. There was this energy reverberating and emerging and setting a new vibrational tone in the world and activating people's minds and awakening people's hearts to actually make powerful change in the world. And we taught, we really dove into his new book, How Soon Is Now. And really to sum it all up, the whole interview is really about how soon is now to start changing the world? How soon is now to start making a difference in your life? How soon is now to start making the decisions to be a beneficial presence on the planet and to start helping one another? And this was a great interview, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it, if not if not anything else, then just to wake into certain details about the global situation that we face, the challenges that we face, and what you can do about it right here, right now. So enjoy this interview between me and Daniel Pinchbeck.
Daniel Pinchbeck is the best-selling author of Breaking Open the Head, 2012, The Return Return of Quetzalcoatl, and Notes from the Edge of Times. He co-founded the web magazine Reality Sandwich and Evolver.net and edited the publishing imprint Evolver Editions with North Atlantic Books. He was also featured in the 2010 documentary 2012 Time for Change. And there is a lot more credits to uh, to this man and the work that he's done over many, many years. And let's just dive in. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, I've been looking to looking forward to this for quite some time. And I remember years ago reading your book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And that book really opened my mind. It shifted my paradigm on a great many things and gave me a completely different outlook on um, that whole, you know, when it was kind of interesting, actually, I was talking to our mutual friend a while back, David Wolf, and I had mentioned this idea of, of back in 2012 when there was all the hoopla and, <laughs> and all the different, uh, I guess, theories on what was going to happen. That book landed in my lap, I think, 2011, and uh, it was a really interesting, interesting segue into that year. So I just wanted to share that with you, letting you know that um, I definitely dove into that many years ago, and you've been on my radar for a while. And I'm excited to dive into your new book, How Soon Is Now, with you. Um, because obviously now is the time to be discussing a lot of the topics that you share with us. So um, I'd love to just start off with you. Maybe what is your biggest passion and inspiration for the work that you do now so everyone can kind of get a feel for for you and your your passion for this work? Um, Let's see. I mean, I guess... um I mean, you know, it changes. I mean, you know, each book kind of uh, explores a different kind of set of uh, questions, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my first book was Breaking Open the Head. And I, I, at that book at the time, I was a you know, strict kind of scientific materialist. But um, I was sort of having a spiritual crisis. So the questions were about really, is there anything else? Or, you know, might there be other forms of consciousness or dimensions of reality or whatever? Uh, or is this it, you know, is once we die, is this totally, you know, is everything totally extinguished? Mm. And, um, when I, you know, did all this work with shamanism and visited tribal societies and went through these different initiations, I had a huge number of sort of psychic experiences and different, um, personal sort of phenomenological experiences that, uh, ultimately convinced me that, uh, there's a lot more going on. And um, I, that that led me to start wondering about um, kind of uh, indigenous knowledge systems and uh, what they're saying about our time and you know why why had we repressed uh, you know a lot of the knowledge of uh, indigenous cultures and, and the psychedelics and so on. So that led me to the second book, 2012, Return of Quetzalcoatl, and that book was an inquiry into prophecy and and you know kind of the different understanding that these cultures around the world have about the time that we're in now. And I finished that and I felt like I'd, you know, presented maybe something around, um, you know, the validating maybe the way these other cultures look at the world in relationship to what's happening ecologically and technologically. Mm. But I also felt that 
I, the passion then was really about, well, if there was, if we are in this time of transformation, what, what, how, what does that mean? What, you know, in, in, in real terms, like how is that going to impact, you know, how we live and our technologies and, and the money system and also in a way, um, yeah, what would be a vision for, uh, you know, how the future could unfold in a positive way. So that's really what led me to this new book, How Soon Is Now. Okay. And I want to I want to open up this conversation with your new book with uh, just a little bit of what you share on the back of it where it says the world needs to change. We have unleashed a mega crisis threatening the future of life on earth. The actions we take over the next decade are critical. They will determine the destiny of our descendants and the fate of our world. Wow. Big big statements and I I absolutely agree with it. So let's let's talk about this book. What I I know I kind of understand what the impetus was for this, but can you yeah just share with us what this book is about and what really drove you to write this book at this time? Well, I mean, I, even as I was writing the other books, I, I was kind of exploring what's happening ecologically. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, this, this industrial civilization is having a very massive impact on the planet and according to a lot of evidence and, and so on, uh, if we don't kind of radically shift or redirect our activity, uh, we're not going to, you know, probably survive very long as a species. Uh, at the moment we're eliminating like, you know, 150 roughly species a day, uh, where you know, the, there's you know, over 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, and we know that that'll ultimately lead to um, four degrees Celsius warming temperature and sea levels rising 50 to 100 feet, um, and so on. I mean, the, you know, the evidence is really huge, and, and most mm-hmm. people have avoided really s- sort of marinating in it because it's too depressing uh, and hard to take in. Uh, but I feel it's really necessary that we take in that information, but also you know, just being aware that it means that there, you know, we're going to have we have to make profound changes in our culture and our values and, and, and uh, you know kind of uh, so yeah so so I guess that's what the book was trying to trying to address. Yeah, absolutely, and and you kind of you kind of outline a blueprint for the future. And what in the main areas that it looks like the main eight areas that you've pinpointed are energy, agriculture, industry, media, psychotechnological civilization, design, science, love and community and post capitalism. So it feels like for me, maybe the best place to to move forward to help people understand what kind of changes can they make to maybe highlight a little bit about each one of these areas to empower everybody. So what's your question? So my question is, can we highlight each one of these areas, starting with energy, moving into agriculture, and, um, and uh, in any way that you feel relevant to share, how can people take necessary action steps in their life so they feel empowered to make positive changes? Yeah, that's, a, that's, the, that's like a big – that's a doozy of a question, right? I mean, sure. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> And, um, you know, it does feel like we're kind of limited in what we can do, like, uh, individually. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, obviously, you know, we know that, um, you know, reducing the amount of meat that we eat is a big deal, you know, reducing consumption, you know, excess consumption. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the bigger areas, it's going to require some type of larger, you know, social or systemic change that everybody's going to have to get on board with. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a very big question. I don't know, maybe you can narrow it down a little bit or throw me like a simple, absolutely. simple. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're right. And, and I think that's actually a good point just to, to segue is that I think what, what most people feel is that this is such a huge, like multidimensional systemic issue. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, hands at play, right? So a lot of people probably feel, almost disempowered it like what are the simple things that each person can do just on a basic day-to-day level to actually make a change because it feels like at times even for me Daniel it feels like even the things that I know are positive it can be difficult to feel like I'm actually making a profound change just by the simple actions I take so maybe coming at the coming at it from that level of like um, how important is it, or I should say, let me let me rearrange that question. What are some of the basic things that you've identified that if each one of us gets on board with, we can make a powerful shift? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I, I guess I guess the thing is that I guess, I guess it's sort of my way of looking at it is first, we really have to understand it in a, in a systemic way. Yeah. And um and there's a little bit of a tendency that we have to like, you know, try to like, you know, like, yeah, I mean, there's anxiety and we want to jump into action or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, as I said, like, you know, you can do very little, I mean, you can reduce consumption, you know, whatever, but the, the, the bigger stuff is, I mean, I think first, that's really what the book tries to do is we have to understand the type of uh, systemic transition that's necessary. And, and then we can figure out how we plug into that. Uh, which is different, you know, for different people. So systemically, like, you know, in terms of the, and, and as you mentioned, there's like a few different areas that I look at. One is like just the area of what we, we need to do in terms of our technical infrastructure, you know, so look at like farming, energy and industry. And, um, you know, energy, we have to make a you know really quick shift to renewables, um, much, much faster even than the, you know, COP21 or the Paris Agreement talked about. Um, industrially, we have to shift away from exploitative and destructive industries to cradle to cradle manufacturing practices that we're, we're, which are based on kind of closed loop systems. Um, and in terms of, um, uh, agriculture, we have to, we have to move away from industrial farming mm-hmm. to, uh, regenerative, uh, agricultural practices like no-till and organic and permaculture that actually replenish topsoil rather than deplete it. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so I mean, those are the, those are the big technical areas that, that, that need to happen, you know, sort of together. And to do that is going to require shifts in our, in our economic and our social system. I mean, clearly we can see with uh, Trump's election, you know, what's happening politically you know, there's this horrible regression taking place. Mm. 
but you know maybe that's just something maybe that's almost necessary for the for the system that exists now yeah and have reached its ultimate apotheosis of like negativity and greed and maybe even the system has to break down mm. uh, so that something more true and authentic can can emerge mm. um, you know so yeah and so that I look at um, how we might you know, re- reinvent our governing systems and our economic systems so that it would support healthy uh, human communities, and uh, you know, and you know, there has to be a redistribution of, of wealth. Uh, I think, um, and uh, so, yeah. So I think you know, as people take in the whole paradigm, then they can figure out what they're what the, how they best contribute individually if they believe in what I'm talking about. So for somebody who's a gardener, you know, there's there's ways to contribute. For somebody who, you know, some people are going to want to create models of communities that uh, are, you know, living closer to the land. Um, some people who are, you know, if you're a lawyer, you might want to, like, you know, protect indigenous rights or, you know, put more energy into, mm-hmm. into you know, I mean, you know, so it's stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, I, it's not like a, you know, it's not an easy Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I know. And I kind of was putting you on the spot in a way, not intentionally, but just by the nature of the question, because it's such a big one. But what what I heard in what you're saying, Daniel, is that each person has a unique proclivity towards what the solution is for them. So if somebody has a particular interest or they have a career or they've spent their life in a particular vocation, they're naturally going to be inclined in a particular direction. And what it sounds like to me is that it doesn't take all of us to do really the same thing. It takes all of us to find out what our gift is and what is our what is our authentic calling and how can we use that to serve the greater purpose. Does that sound yeah. about right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to definitely resonate with that. And one of the things that just came up for me in regards to some of the things that you talk about in this book, I want to shift over into this conversation about love and community. And what you say on your website, on on this blueprint that you've laid out, new forms of relationship and community will allow for deeper exploration of love and eroticism as men and women overcome old programming and conditioning. Jeez, that is an incredible area. Can we touch on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we can touch on that. Do you want to? What, what, what you want to maybe, maybe ask a more specific question? Sure. Yeah, and um, you know, there's a part in your book where it says sexuality is a superpower. So, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, um, I, I, that was a quote from uh, this guy Dieter Doom, who was the philosopher and founder of this community called Tamara in Portugal, uh, and before that, of a community called Zeg which were really kind of, you know, which I write about, I visited the, the one in, in Portugal. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, sexuality is, 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 a, is, a, is something that really kind of underlies our lives and, um, you know, let's think about it in terms of like the last uh, election cycle, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, how, how sort of toxic male sexuality was like a very major component on so many levels, right, uh, right. whether it was Trump and his misogyny and the grabbing of the pussy and how that shockingly even seemed to appeal to, to a lot of people. 
to um, Clinton and you know the philandering and the kind of uh, aspersions on his character from his lying about his philandering. You know, Anthony Weiner, uh, you know, who ran for mayor in, in New York, uh, was was busted on his uh, sexting and his compulsive lying around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, his wife uh, was Hillary Clinton's chief aide. And uh, when they were investigating her laptop for information on the sexting scandal, that, that actually helped lead to Hillary losing the election. Um, you know, then recently Bill O'Reilly, you know, was just ousted for sexual harassment. Roger Ailes, who's one of the most powerful people in the whole Republican machine, was uh, was just disgraced for sexual harassment. So, anyway, so just you know, then we see it all over. We see it in the yoga communities, you know, with you know yoga teachers, and, and we see yeah. it in the public, you know, public artists and, and uh, celebrities. So something there's something going on, you know, with our with the whole arena of sexuality in our society, where it is this kind of superpower, and, and it's channeled in these destructive ways. And, um, you know, if we're ever going to have a, a peaceful and workable human society, we have to make a much deeper uh, inquiry into that. And, um, yeah, and, and then if you do that inquiry, uh, I think that what you begin to uncover is that, um, you know, we, we were never really, pro, you know, we were, were not biologically meant to be monogamous for the most part. Uh, that monogamy and the nuclear family are, are recent constructs. Uh, that developed like um, having to do with agricultural surplus and patriarchy. You know, uh, a lot of tribal societies had, were much looser, and a lot of them, women had much more sexual autonomy. Uh, in many cases, there were you know kind of multi-partner relationships, and, and and actually, I think we see you know trends in this direction. It's sort of happening, uh, you know, in, in our society. Like women are, have a lot more you know freedom. You know, the, the traditional structures are breaking down, but we're kind of in this interim, you know, transitional zone where we don't really know what replaces it. Um, mm. So that's, that's why I was really fascinated by Tamara because they, they were – it was started by these uh, German radicals who were in the 60s and 70s in these kind of leftist movements. And they were trying to figure out why the kind of utopian uh, alternative didn't really emerge into prominence or didn't work. And they began to realize that it was these core issues around uh, love and sexuality and jealousy and possessiveness and so on that were actually kind of corroding uh, or, or making it impossible for, the, for these uh, new social uh, movements to, 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 to function. So they kind of went into hibernation and they created like a new social design, which includes, um, you know, non-possessive relationships rooted in, in trust and authenticity with all sorts of new kind of uh, social tools uh, and principles that they've kind of evolved over time to mediate uh, issues that arise in the community. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's such an interesting conversation. And I can imagine some people um, at first glance might be um, uh, triggered or something might come up for them around this idea that you propose that monogamy isn't really quote unquote natural or it isn't something that had been indigenously practiced to the to the the level that it is pretty much the well accepted norm of our society and even even kind of used as a form of control in um, certain um, in the I guess the over masculine kind of dominant part of society which you're kind of speaking to and I, I just want to I want to maybe 
probe into that a little bit more so people that are on the other end of this interview, they might understand how that makes sense to them because there's going to be a lot of people that are married, a lot of people that are in singular relationships and, the, and that's their frame of, 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 that's their model, so to speak. Um, so I am wondering if, if there's any more maybe distinctions on how, how that plays into um, modern day relationships as they stand now, if, that, if, if what I'm saying makes, makes clear sense. Uh, it almost makes sense. I'm sure everyone gives out questions. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I mean, so like, you know, as I said, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important to acknowledge that, um, you know, the, the, the situation we're not, we have now is really not working out very well. You know, obviously if there are people who are happy in monogamous relationships, that's amazing. You know, n n you know, all power to them. But, you know, for a lot of people, they, they don't work very effectively. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of problems. We see a lot of breakups and jealousy and, you know, it just doesn't seem like this is the best that we can do. And, um, and, and so, you know, this idea that, you know, we could really create another social design, I think is really an interesting one. And, um, and then even for like something like taking care of children, you know, the monogamous couple, the nuclear family is, is a much less efficient, um, model for that. And more like a tribal or community model where children are raised cooperatively. I mean, uh, and, and one reason why I think monogamy is clung to and is, is such a you know ideological bulwark of, of modern society is um, that, yeah, in, in a way, um, you know, for, for a woman, if she wants to have a child, you know, in, in this economic system, then she really has to make a partnership with a man who's going to be there for, you know, 18 years of solid investment and uh, it's very threatening because if you have to raise a child alone in the society, that's basically, you know, most of your energy goes into that. You know, you don't you can't you know, follow your career or your passions or whatever. So um, so that's that's, I think, one of the main reasons why, you know, women cling to monogamy. And, and actually, there was even an article in The New York Times magazine a couple of weeks ago about open marriages. Mm -hmm. It's just becoming you know, more accepted and, and more realized that these can actually work uh, with less with less social opprobrium around it. Um, and, uh, they note in that article that it's actually often the women who are the ones who kind of lead, lead the way, um, you know, and, 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 um, so yeah, so, so yeah, so I think that things are really, really changing, but you know, there's the, once again, there's a limit to what individuals can do. I mean, some individuals are very creative and can work out new arrangements, but, but ultimately it's, it's a question of social design. Yeah, and and I like what you said. Like, if if it's working for two individuals, and that and that's and they're in love, and they're and it's really working, then more power to them. And I like what you're saying. There's kind of like this emergent possibility that's coming out of this conversation, right? Like the one thing I'm noticing in every area that we've gone so far is that we're in some kind of transition, right? Like that seems to be the theme is that we're, none of us really know where the whole thing is going. We have a lot of ideas of, we know where it's been for sure, and we know what's not working. And there's like this emergent possibility that I think a lot of us are trying to get on board with. And, um, and it just opens up this conversation of possibilities um, where before we've just been given a lot of conditioned kind of um, boxes to place ourselves in.
Yeah. Okay. There you go. So it's like, yeah, we have to recognize where, where we've just been conditioned and, and indoctrinated. And then it, it does take, um, you know, some hard work, uh, and experiments and courage to kind of, kind of break through, you know, it's, uh, into, into something else, you know? And so we're in the process right now in a lot of areas. You just said something that really, really, um, spoke to me. And I want to, I want to know, I want to get your personal experience, if you will, on this, this note about courage, because what appears to me to be the case is it's not just about external strategies or tactics, but it's the courage in or in needed to carry these things out. And that seems to be the, the big issue in society is that people are so conditioned in fear and anxiety for the future that the, the, the actual willingness to, to do what is necessary, um, that can be the biggest challenge. So how important has courage been in your journey? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, I mean, what you're doing right now is highly courageous. Like the work that you do and being a public figure is highly courageous. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, uh, thank you. I guess, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, going back to the first book, um, you know, I, I, when, when, when I was writing about when breaking open the head came out in 2002, I mean, the psychedelic area was very repressed and, felt even dangerous to be advocating for the value of these experiences. I used to be scared in airports that I would be like, you know, oh, wow. or something. But, um, you know, now I've seen that, you know, not just because of my book, but I think my book really, you know, helped You know, there's a huge opening happening and, and I don't think they're going to be able to put the genie back into the bottle. I mean, there's so much research happening all around the world and the evidence from science is becoming so, you know, uh, overwhelming that, that there's benefits to these, uh, compounds and, and, um, they're really, really important to study. So, um, yeah, I think, so I think, yeah, maybe, maybe it's like people have different personality types and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of the pioneer kind of visionary personality type. So it's sort of just my tendency to sort of, you know, mm-hmm. probe into the edges of things. And, and yeah, there is often some danger there for sure, but that's the only way that change can happen also. Right. And and I find, too, just on a personal level, that's really where fulfillment is, right? Like a lot of this conversation about kind of saving the planet, to me, ties into like our fulfillment for being in this physical incarnation from a spiritual perspective. It just seems to me that there's some kind of enjoyment, uh, fulfillment that goes along with knowing that we're, can, we're actually like committing our life or maybe committing is not the right word, but we're we're participating in the restoration of the planet. Yeah, I, I think that you know people have an underlying sense of kind of guilt and uh, mm. unease, and maybe even grief, because we all know that we're part of something that really has to change, uh, and um, you know we have to go from that knowing to actually trying to figure out how we change it. You know, right. I'm really interested to go down this kind of train of thought with you when it comes to a little bit about the spiritual perspective to all this, because a lot of the people that are listening to this show are very uh, spiritually or metaphysically and philosophically inclined in many ways. And I think that would be of great interest to people to just kind of get a get a hint of the, the I guess, spiritual uh, kind of perspective. Um, I'm, I, and there's one part in your book 
where you talk about the cosmic illusion. And I know that you talk a lot about the five MEO experiences that you've had, the DMT experiences that you've had. Um, and I, I want to go down that, that little rabbit hole with you for a moment as it leads into technology being a form of consciousness. Um, so to start that off, like what is the cosmic illusion as you pointed out in your book? Well, what is the cosmic illusion? Um, yeah, well, I guess um, you know. I mean, I, I, you know, I guess for me, even spirituality, you know, is is, a, is just a word, and, and sometimes it becomes actually a problematic word. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of um, has in it kind of an implicit Western dualism, uh, you know, between spirit and matter, which which I don't think uh, indigenous cultures um, have uh, in, the, in the same way that that. Um, Western and even Eastern cultures have. But, uh, you know, from, as I mentioned earlier, from my psychedelic uh, and and shamanic explorations, I do think there are, you know, many other levels, dimensions. I mean, now physics talks about 10 dimensions of space-time or 11. Actually, I was at this conference in England uh, last weekend, and there was a guy there who was kind of well-respected astrophysicist from an English university who, you know, friends with Stephen Hawking. And he was actually talking about sort of these higher dimensions and how they might, you know, ultimately link up to what people are experiencing phenomenologically and in psychedelic states. And that was very, very uh, exciting for me because uh, I think if that's a bridge that can be built uh, from establishment science to psychedelic experience, it would be really, it would would really accelerate uh, the discourse around it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, of these different levels or dimensions, um, as you mentioned, one one uh, psychedelic that we can experience is, is called 5-MeO-DMT, and it comes from a uh, toad, uh, and also many plants express it. And when you smoke it, it's it's very much like uh, the experiential confirmation of what Buddhism talks about is like nirvana or the void. So it's this kind of infinite uh, bliss, but it's, there's no subject object there. So there's kind of no, no you there to experience it. And when, and when you come out of it and your ego kind of like recrystallizes, it can be very, very kind of shocking uh, to integrate. Uh, from, from the higher dimensional perspective, maybe one way to think about that would be like, you know, there's these, you know, we're in like the fourth dimension. There's like a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth dimension. There's a dimension of, you know, um, kind of uh, – you know, different universes and, and all their possible timelines and outcomes. And then the, on the, the final, you know, sort of the, the underlying dimension would be the, the dimension of these kind of vibratory superstrings that are vibrating in all the dimensions at once and kind of holding the whole fabric of, of everything together. So it might be that when you take 5-MeO-DMT, you sort of are, are brought back into that, into that uh, direct uh, experience of that sort of 10th dimension. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I, and for me, that um, suggests that, you know, we could talk about space and time as, you know, a relative illusion, that there's an underlying spaceless and timeless uh, reality, uh, and where we may have uh, physics uh, justifying. By the way, there, there's a lot of, like, rustling on your side. I, I don't know if that's going to be hearable on your, on your thing, but... Um, no, it shouldn't be a problem. So, um, yeah, so... Um, I guess in that sense, um, it is a cosmic illusion, but it's what we got. And, um, you know, I think that, 
I don't know. Do you want to ask more, another question about that? I'm, I'm yes. Uh, no, I, I, I love it. And, and I, I like to just probe certain, certain buttons to see what train of thoughts come out. That's, that's, uh, that's something I just like to, to, uh, allow somebody just kind of to spill out whatever, whatever comes out organically. And I, I really love what you've been sharing. What, um, and it's an interesting conversation for a lot of people listening because a lot of people may have no, some people may have a lot of experience with entheogens or psychedelics and may know exactly what you're talking about. And some people may be very curious, but they've never experienced that or they might have a hesitation because of cultural or I shouldn't say cultural, I should say societal conditioning from you know, the, the drug war and, and all that kind of thing, they may not quite understand from an experiential perspective. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And I guess a follow up question to that is how beneficial do you feel it would be for, I wouldn't say everyone, but maybe most people that are curious to, to kind of cross over and have, um, a transcendent psychedelic experience. Um, I think it's uh, very beneficial for many people. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think that's even like just gives people a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a permission slip to just explore the fringes, right? It sounds like that's what what your experience was too. That you just you were willing to explore the fringes of your own experience. And then that took you on the journey that you that you're clearly on now. Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose it's a fringe, but yeah, to me, to me, it felt very essential. So, mm. yeah. Cool. I I want to I want to take the time that we have left, and especially as it pertains to your book, one of the concepts that I really really enjoy is this idea of a planetary initiation. And I absolutely feel that that is what's going on. I feel like there's an initiation on many different levels, um, this human experience and the planet as a whole, the planet as a living, um, a living organism that we are, that we are in communion with. So from your perspective, like, what do you feel the planetary initiation that we're going through is? Um, well, I mean, I think that at the moment, you know, if we look around our society and the people who are running the show in particular, you know, we're, we're kind of trapped in a very adolescent uh, state, mm. uh, irresponsible, um, you know, individually and collectively. And, and we're seeing that that's careening towards a very destructive outcome. Um, you know, initiations in traditional societies around the world were um, – not just cultural events, but maybe even like neurophysiological events. Like people would go through ordeals where they would, um, you know, go into altered states of consciousness, visionary states through like fasting or walkabouts or physical extremes or psychedelic journeys. And um, they would, you know, through that experience, they would get out of their egoic uh, mind and they would have more of an experience of a, of a larger frame of like transpersonal awareness or whatever. And, and it was, they, you know, for these indigenous and traditional societies, they felt that only once somebody had gone through that type of experience, they could be considered responsible and an adult because they would have a sense of themselves as 
you know, beyond their own self-interest, that they have a larger responsibility for the collective, for, for, for you know, for, for the natural world and so on. Mm-hmm. So because we no longer have these kind of initiation rights, um, but that, that need for them is, is basic to our human existence, it like builds up this kind of pressure, you know. Right. And, I, and I, now it's built up a very, you know, the kind of almost destructive uh, pressure. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it may be that, um, you know, it's like, I mean, um, the kind of sense that we're moving towards kind of a very, you know, violent and, and kind of depressing outcomes, um, you know, I think comes from our, our incapacity to, um, you know, kind of ha- have these kind of uh, initiations on a cultural level at this point. Yeah, this, this is. I'm glad we went in this direction. This is such an important point. I was raised as a martial artist since I was four, and was practicing extensively for about 25 years. And that gave me, as a young man, gave me the experience of a rite of passage. And there were many initiations that led to my growth, led to my development, led to my humility, and also led to the sense of responsibility. Um, that went beyond my own basal needs and my own basic desires and, and immediate gratifications. It actually allowed me, it gave me the discipline, um, you know, in many different areas. And so that's what comes up for me very strongly. And, and it's very interesting, too, as we were mentioning kind of this over masculinity or not this over kind of distorted masculine society um, and the problems with it, it appears to me, Daniel, that a lot of that may have to do with the fact that as men, we kind of were bred out of having these traditional rites of passages that normally we would have had in, in prior cultures. Yeah, it's basically what I was, yeah, that's what I was saying for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, do you, so along that same line, um, do you see, that coming back or, or better yet, have you identified any ways that people can bring that kind of thing back into their life as it, as it might entail for, um, you know, raising the next generation? Uh, I mean, I do see, you know, I mean, I think that's part of what the big psychedelic revival, uh, um, uh, is about also. Sure. Yeah. And, um, meditation and, and yoga. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's there's definitely a big cultural movement uh, in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I feel like that's just such an important thing, and it uh, it makes a more well developed human being. And one of um, you know, as we as we get close to concluding our time together here, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling into how I want to how I want to kind of finalize this conversation because. There's so much in this book, you know, I'm I'm sitting with it right now and you have this incredible, um, there's just this incredible depth in such a broad spectrum, um, topic or subject matter that you go through in here. And I really just more than anything, encourage everybody on the other side of this interview to go to Amazon or go to the website, howsoonisnow.info and look into the book and get yourself a copy of it because people like Russell Brand are saying that this is a blueprint for the future and I absolutely get that sense from it and one of the things that you said Daniel that earlier on in this conversation that I thought was just so important was that it sometimes it's very easy for us to immediately jump into action mode and try to fix things 
Um, however, it may be kind of counterproductive unless we know the bigger picture and we know the systemic problems going on in our world, which you lay out very clearly um, in order to know what the actual right things for each of us are to do. Yeah, no, thank you. I think that's great that you picked up on that. I mean, yeah, that's really, um, um, I think that's a really important uh, point. And yeah, we see a lot of, you know, examples of people like chasing after the symptoms. Yes, but uh, yes. unless we first diagnose, you know, both the causes and, um, you know, the, what, what systemically uh, needs to happen, you know, we, we, we can make, you know, huge mistakes, you know. Yeah, I mean, just on that note, and, and I'm in the health and the health, wellness and nutrition world. So, I mean, when I think of what I think of is like the allopathic approach of treating symptoms, which has created an entire pharmaceutical cartel and industry that is more invested in sickness and suppression than it is in actual health. We have that same kind of moniker going around in many different areas. And, and I'd like to maybe just kind of get your take on this. Um, since it got brought up, the whole Trump situation, I don't mean to get political. I'm just curious as a kind of metaphorical thing more than anything. That to me appears to be more of people, people going after the symptom in just in just um, choosing like a short term kind of action um, opposed to really seeing the bigger picture to make a, a possibly a better choice. I'm not sure what you what you're talking about in terms of people protesting Trump or what do you mean? Um, well, I guess it could go either way, but I mean just in the so let me let me bring it back for a little more clarity on this. So what I noticed was that when the whole election was going on, there was this conversation of choosing the lesser of two evils, and it seemed like people were were um, almost panicking or almost um, panicking is not the right word, but almost choosing one side out of desperation because they may not have known any alternative? Well, I mean, um, you know, we have a very uh, broken system. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, it may be that the system itself is so outmoded and obsolete that, that it's ultimately going to have to go through some very deep transition. And I do, you know, look at that in the book and, you know, I look at, um, how there's a relationship between like the history of, of, uh, media and the history of social and political organization, you know, so you could never have had like, um, a tribe even without a drum to bring people together. You could never have had an empire or a kingdom, you know, without a written code of laws, um, you know, without writing, you know, you could never have had a nation state, uh, you know, without a printing press, which allowed enough people to have information so they could vote every few years. Uh, I mean, I think that the internet suggests a new form of social organizing, which ultimately, which political organizing, which ultimately would be much more participatory and ongoing and, and direct. And in the book, I talk about different efforts to, to create a scaffolding for this. Uh, one, one, one organization, one group is called Democracy OS out of Argentina. Uh, another one is called Lumio. It started by tech visionaries in, in New Zealand. Um, and those are tools that people could already, you know, access and, and use uh, if they want to even just create local democracies among their friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, so, yeah, so so for me, the fact that uh, we were only get, ultimately given the alternative between two really, you know, reprehensible candidates 
um, you know, did lead to many people just saying, fuck it. You know, why go with the lesser evil? Because, um, you know, it's still really broken and, you know, they, they, they could feel the hypocrisy and so on. Uh, so in a way we've pushed it to the extreme because I don't, I don't, you know, the, the, this current situation is extremely, uh, terrifying. Yes. Um, I mean, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt, you know, precedence, um, in, uh, fascism and Nazism and so on that we need to look at seriously, um, that people are still not really, um, taking, taking the, the warning signs, uh, seriously. And, and I think we do need to, you know, do what we can to, um, you know, protest or organize against this, um, situation. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, and, and at the moment, I mean, the whole system is kind of teetering on the question of even in the kind of like, um, you know, kind of, uh, surface level, whether we're still a society, you know, based on the rule of law, you know, or whether it's really just about power and control, like the Republicans, really seem to have, you know, no interest in, in, in constitutional uh, protections and, and, you know, what the constitution or what the basis of the whole country is all about, um, you know, to the point where they're really, I'm sure in the next few years going to do everything they can to control the voting systems, to make it extremely hard for, you know, lower income or disenfranchised people to vote um, so that they can take a permanent like one party control over the country. So I, I do think there's a little bit of like the, the spiritual community, you know, quote unquote, has a little bit of been in a fog and there's a little bit of a focus on, you know, self-healing and like personal stuff and so on. And, and, you know, people do need to step, you know, more into the, into the fray somehow or other. I don't even necessarily know how to do it. I mean, I made one attempt to create like a structure, uh, evolver like a few years ago, but, um, you know, recognizing this is really an kind of existential emergency, uh, you know, it's, it, it is, I mean, um, you know, what, what he's doing to the, uh, environment and, you know, the chemicals are going to be released, um, you know, through, um, the rollback of all the environmental restrictions. I mean, you know, it's really something that we do have to take very seriously. Mm. So, and it is, you know, somehow if it is, if it is an initiation that we're going to rise up to, to deal with, uh, we're going to have to do that. I mean, um, as a lot of our films have sort of, you know, foretold. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that Steve Bannon is Trump's uh, Trump's chief advisor, this white supremacist, um, you know, monster, has even compared himself uh, to interviews, uh, uh, interviews to, to Darth Vader and Satan. So almost really taking that archetypal uh, evil position, um, you know, just total uh, corrupt uh, control and domination. So, yeah, it seems to me that, um, you know, a, a, a very uh, active alternative has to, has to somehow emerge. Wow. You really, you really hit all the, all the areas I was, I was, I feel like I was wanting to go right there. That's an incredible point to just, to just conclude on and, and um, well, to, to just the, the concluding point for me on the other end of that is personal responsibility. Just to put out a few things, what the book really looks at is also, yeah. even with climate change and all the negative things that are happening, uh, you know, we're, we're already, we're also seeing tremendous progress in different areas. And for instance, you know, automation, you know, could, could actually be great. I mean, um, you know, one way that Trump won the election was by saying they were going to bring back, you know, kind of the industrial culture of the fifties with all these manufacturing jobs, you know, and we know that's not going to happen. And in fact, you know, as automation uh, accelerates, you know, there's going to be less and less uh, of these, these types of jobs for people 
And that's only a problem in the present economic system because actually it would be amazing to, to you know, alleviate people from having to do drudgery jobs and to actually have the time uh, and uh, space to cultivate, you know, relationships, you know, their creativity, their unique essence, you know, to, you know, so, so, you know, there, there's this option for us to, you know, use the idea of a basic income or a, a model where, you know, we, we create self-sufficient communities where people can take care of themselves and be liberated to have a lot more of their own time and freedom. So in a way, like the, the, this negative uh, force that's, um, that's sort of coming over everything, um, you know, behind it, you know, you know, beyond it potentially lies a much more positive uh, social construction and social design. But, um, you know, obviously we don't know if we're going to get there yet. And, and my book definitely tries to show what that would be and, and, and also, you know, propose some strategic means by which we could achieve it. Yeah, that and what you just said, I'm so glad you 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 finalized that that train of thought with that because it, it leads us back into this place of like, okay, maybe this is literally just what needs to happen for us to get the message. It's kind of like why there's a guardrail on a freeway. It's like you you need to hit the guardrail before you go off the edge in order to let you know that you're getting close to to the edge, right? And then that's our opportunity to actually take responsibility and uh, hopefully steer the ship in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be a very uh, turbulent times right now. And, um, you know, for the next few years, it may get pretty dark. Um, you know, obviously, we hope not. But um, um, and hopefully people who are part of, you know, more of this like, you know, consciousness community will, you know, step into, uh, you know, more powerful roles and, and you know, maybe almost get beyond the focus, the sort of excessive focus on uh, self-healing and, and uh you know, see that there's, there's a deeper mission. That speaks, that really actually speaks really loud and clear to me. I would love to see all of us to really, to step up and really embody more leadership that doesn't just focus on our own micro communities, but focuses on our global community. Um, that I really appreciate you making that point. Well, Benny, all right, listen, it was great talking to you. Good luck with the podcast and uh, we'll speak again soon. I hope. All right. Thank you so much, Daniel.